Welcome to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by BMO's Hong Kong-based trader, Dave Moore. Dave trades various Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar bonds during the Asian session. This week's episode is titled, Icarus. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesis at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. It's always good to catch up with you, Mr. Dave Moore, to get some insight on the Asian investor base and what the other side of the planet is thinking about. I'm guessing that's inflation, but we'll see on that. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, shocked this is my third time now. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. I always have a great time. Your, your episodes are actually one of my favorites, personally, but don't tell everyone else that. Let's start with yesterday's Canadian GDP report while it's still fresh in our minds, or at least fresh in my mind, since that, that's what I do for a living. Q1 was uh, pretty good. I mean, at, at, at around 5.5%, growth was was solid, especially if you consider that Canada was going through the second wave at the time and you had lockdowns and restrictions early in the quarter. Things did open up as time went on, but the fact that the starting point was pretty soft and or seemingly should have been soft and we still managed to get uh, pretty decent growth is, is impressive. Unfortunately, that's unlikely to last in the second quarter. March may have been good, but April was certainly not. And May, I can't imagine, is is meaningfully better. At best, you kind of think things were flattish in May, given that restrictions and lockdowns continued through that month. We're starting to see reopenings in June. So the end of the quarter, the end of the second quarter should look pretty decent, but that's not going to save the quarter as a whole, but it does set up a pretty solid Q3. The naysayers, from a recovery perspective, uh, consistently harp on uh, the kind of dependency on government to to sustain this recovery. Uh, and and I, I think it's important to note that one of the key things in, in yesterday's GDP report was on the income side and in that if you looked at wages and salaries, they're actually back to the pre-COVID trends. And so it's not only fiscal spending that's driving the bus at this point. And so I would be very cautious in leaning too much on that narrative at this point. And another would be kind of the dependency in Canada on housing. Oh, definitely. I, I don't think you can debate that the first quarter numbers were housing-driven. Residential investment was up 43% annualized, absolutely massive. And that's undoubtedly going to fall in the second quarter with uh, with activity pulling back, not still at astronomical levels, but still down from where they were. And then look at that relative to business investment, which was pretty weak, but that business investment side was really weighed heavily on by aircraft sales. We still, we exported a bunch of aircraft to the US, which is negative investment. And so every other sector of business investment was higher, that was lower. I don't think you want to be too negative just because we sold some airplanes. That would be slightly ridiculous. Unfortunately for Canada, because I, I, as I mentioned, Q2 will be weak, it's, it's going to be a while before we get a really good read on how the Canadian economy is doing, how the recovery is going. And so we'll, I guess we'll be taking our cues from the U.S. using kind of this week's May job report as, I guess, a, a, a prime example after the disappointment in April. We'll see what May brings. What's the view on Canada from Asia right now, Dave? It falls into a couple of buckets. The first being 
we're less than 3% of global reserve management currency basket and therefore passive at best. And I think that makes some sense. It's you have Canadian dollars to spend and so you go and buy something and that tends to be in the front end, say sub five year, more likely going to be in bills and, and that. Uh, so you have that type of investor. You have a little bit more in the weeds, a little bit more actively involved, looking for RV, looking for opportunities, particularly asset management and bank treasuries, that type of environment. And I think most have been fairly confident in the numbers and in the data coming out of Canada. I think last time we spoke, we talked to the tailwinds of the Canadian economy face as we head into this year. I think it was January we last spoke and you know, that has come through. Uh, we're looking at vaccination rates for eligible adults likely to be up in the 80-90% by September. And I think people are pretty confident and pretty happy with that. So that community are not exactly going out of their way to start buying a lot of Canadian duration because it doesn't necessarily make sense when you look at the, the economic backdrop. And then the third is, you know, purely from the asset management arm, they have Canadian dollars. And Canadian products, you know, swap back to Asian currencies on, you know, a hedge equivalent basis look pretty terrific. Australia looks better. Uh, the U.S. looks good, but Canada looks really, really strong. And so if you have something to buy and you can do some of the, the like the FX hedging, it makes a ton of sense, a ton of sense. And I think that particularly in our business, we tend to forget that a lot of this is asset and liability driven, right? It's where you have sources of cash and you have to put a use to that source. And we always get a little overzealous and excited when looking at Canada because it's our you know, bread and butter. It's our calling card. But for most people, it's we have Canadian dollars and we need to spend it. And it's just how do they express that on the curve? And I think going into this month, there was fairly decent consensus that the back end of the curve looked attractive relative to like the G7 or the G10 peer group, particularly tens bonds against that G7 or G10 peer. My personal preference, and I've written about this, was the 20-year sector offered you know such attractive roll down. When you look at things from a temporal standpoint, again, we get kind of stuck in this absolute world where it's well, it's just how many basis points can I get? And when you're looking, you know, a bit more like from the sidelines and say, okay, well, how do I express this most elegantly? You can extend out, say, to 10-year risk from 2031 to 2041 and pick up 75 or 80% of the entire 10 bonds Canada curve. So if you don't have a massive duration mandate and you have to own ultra long or, you know, super long dated assets, there's so many opportunities to use that. And that's where we're seeing it, uh, particularly it feels like in the provincial space in this region, that kind of 20-year sector. And I think that seems to be the, the flavor of choice for expression right now. So one of the reasons you like the 20-year sector is, I'm guessing, because you get a little bit, I guess, less risk to the potentially sizable inflation tail risk that is out there. Is that part of the thesis behind the 20-year versus the 30-year? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I, I, as we've talked about every time I've been on here, I'm no inflation expert, but I really do enjoy the topic. But when I look at Canada and I look at the 20-year sector, from a weighted average maturity, you just get more bang for your buck. 
from an extension standpoint, you're absolutely right. I really dislike being too far out the curve. And I, I think I've said it again every time we've spoken, just how much I hate long bonds. Uh, that hasn't changed. I still very much hate long bonds. I still think that they have no place being here around 150 or 155 in, in US curve terms. Like That doesn't make sense to me. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I still very much hate them. But if you have to own something and you have to be part of that, that, well, we have a mandate to fulfill. This isn't just, you know, someone flipping a coin and saying, I think rates are going up or down, or I think curves going steeper or flatter. These are real liability needs that need to be met over a very long period of time. I would rather treat that with a lot more uh, of a dynamic approach than just saying, okay, well, here's the benchmark point and this is what I have to own. Yeah, for the most part, you probably want to be in and around that point. But there's opportunities. And when they do come, they're they're very, very attractive. And I think we last talked, you and I, on the 20-year sector in Canada back in February. And it was similarly priced to where we are now. And it, it just traded terrifically. For two or three weeks, it was an absolute gift. And I just, you know, we go into June and everyone talks about, you know, June index and everyone talks about the coupon and maturity profile. And so I'm not going to, you know, go too deep into that and because it's just, it's so well documented, but it doesn't make it any less true. And when you look at the, just the need and the demand for, for paper, if that doesn't get satiated through the provincial and supply chain of bonds coming to the market and the issuance cycle, there is a lot of need. Uh, and a lot of maturities and a lot of money to put to work. You know, you're looking at across like nine tickers, the, the kind of big nine Canadian tickers and, and govies and can have looking at almost 50 billion in coupon and maturity money that has to be spent this month. Now, is that going to chase 51s or equivalent when you can buy something inside like 37s or, or 45s? reduce that weight average maturity, come in on the curve a little bit, but capture more than 50 to 75% of the entire 10 bonds curve. Of course, like that to me is just a logical trade. That as a, if I was sitting as a portfolio manager with actual needs and duration to buy, these opportunities come up not very frequently. So when they do, you just have to take advantage of it and you get some of that protection against my general hatred of long bonds. I hear you there. If you like the 20-year sector, I think maybe moving out of 33s into something in, in that uh, 15 to 20-year sector also makes a fair amount of sense. Oh, absolutely. These are, are just beyond that 10-year point, and they, they trade uh, more in line with, with the long end than they do with 10s, but that, that's going to change at some point in, in the not immediate future, but, but relatively near future. And so the, that, that bond in particular, that sector in particular, is pretty vulnerable at this point to some, some pretty material repricing probably later this year and maybe much later this year when we look probably more at like the issuance of, of December of 2031 bonds, which won't be for a while, but it, it is coming. So something definitely to uh, to keep in mind on that front. Dave, you mentioned your thoughts on inflation and I mean, we're of like mind here and that the risks are definitely on the upside here. And from my perspective, it's hard to see it otherwise. I mean, I read on almost on a daily basis, more and more anecdotes about supply chain issues. Today was is in the Financial Times, there was an article on power shortages in China and that that's hampering their ability to produce God knows what, everything, anything you can get your hands on. And those types of issues seem to just be really prevalent at this point. And, and maybe they're all temporary 
can I say that with any amount of certainty? Uh, no. I mean, I, I don't I don't think we've been through a period like this before. So how do we know for sure that all this stuff is, is going to be temporary? Maybe maybe demand stays stronger for a little bit longer than people think. And that causes that many more supply chain issues and uh, commodity price inflation. And, and just there just isn't enough of the base materials needed to produce all this stuff that people want. Uh, and, and maybe the supply chain issues are more of a problem as as we kind of move to to deglobalize, and or maybe that it, it it pushes that deglobalization a little bit little bit quicker, which in and of itself is is probably at least no longer deflationary. Doesn't necessarily have to be inflationary, but you maybe you're at least removing one of the deflationary trends we've had over the past twenty or thirty years. But I'll, I want to look at this from a central banking perspective, and so what we have is central banks who now believe. I mean, they profess this loud and clear. We can control higher inflation. We are in no way concerned about higher inflation. This will not be an issue. If inflation picks up, we are more than happy to tighten. What we are worried about is low inflation getting back to the 2010s and, and the post-global financial crisis period where inflation was sub 2% for a long time. They were unable to really hit their target over that pretty much entire cycle. And so they want to avoid that at all costs. And, and they're doing that, from my perspective, by, I guess, well, doing mass amounts of QE and, and focusing a little bit more on the labor market and letting inflation run a little bit hot. Uh, at least they say a little bit hot. I mean, do you believe what they're saying, Dave? Do you, do you think they have the ability to control that higher inflation? Is low inflation still the bigger risk? Is that is that the boogeyman? Or maybe that was only a 10-year issue. It's not as if we've had low inflation forever. 10 years really isn't that long. It is in market world, but in the real world, not so much. So for me, I probably look at this a little bit differently. And you say central banks and kind of put them all together. I think there are certain central banks who are trying their very best to remain humble to the expectation that they can't control inflation should it get out of control and should it go higher. Canada in particular, for me, while can be deemed as one of the more boring central banks, I think their communication has been... I think it's been very, very transparent. I think they've done a very good job of, of expressing intent. And this can be seen on the day they tapered, you know, with that spurious headline that took us three basis points richer in five minutes before the, the announcement and subsequent 10 basis point reprice post. That's a market that believes in the central bank. That's a market that has conviction and faith in what the central bank is saying and the message that they have delivered leading into um into their meeting. That's a double-edged sword, of course, because you have to be somewhat aware of giving too much guidance and then becoming very, very structured around that. And, you know, the 1990s era of hiking kind of jumping to mind. But that said, I think that there's more risk to less clarity. And so stripping Canada and New Zealand out of the central bank pocket and just looking at it from a bit like those outside and then those inside. When I look at central banks and their claim inflation is both transitory and not a concern, concerns me greatly, like in a very, very real, tangible, scary type of way. When I look at inflation and I say, well, I, as I said, I'm not an inflation expert. It's purely something I have a an interest in, and I think we all should, but two big issues that I see with the way central banks express inflation is number one is that this idea of transitory. They're looking for 
sustained economic improvements, but they're not saying how many months or quarters that needs to be quantified or qualified as sustained. At the same time, making inflation for um, inflation assertions based on forecasts, their forecasts. So you have two sets of goals, two sets of goalposts, both ill-defined, easily changed, and ahead with one another. They're telling the market to look for sustained, you know, improvement in economic data, including uh, robust robust price data. To me, which I'm looking at average hourly earnings and looking for wage inflation, because I think that's really what they're trying to say. As you mentioned, they're looking far more on the job side than they are on the actual price side. And, you know, higher average hourly earnings leads to higher prices, generally speaking. That's, that's the first part. The second part is this transitory. And I find transitory to be an almost offensive term because, again, it's, it's ill-defined. It doesn't tell me, is it one year? Are we okay with running inflation? you know, pair the Bundesbank up to 4% for 2021, that's only six months from now to the end of the year. Bundesbank is saying that we may see 4% German inflation. Is that transitory? And then, you know, one year from now, we're going to be back at 2% and everyone's going to be happy and we're going to say, yep, we did all the right stuff. Um, I would rather change the, the conversation around inflation from the, you know, the deflationary impact and all the things that have been so very well kind of telegraphed. And and I actually talk to the temporal side of inflation. What do I mean by that? I mean that the market of you know worrying about inflation in the 1970s is real. It was a manufacturing economy for the bulk of the developed markets. Things you know from order to fulfillment took semi years to maybe full years worth of planning, and so prices really did matter. You know, forward prices were exceptionally important. And so inflation was of a, you know, a fairly decent concern. Because if you have, you know, prices forward costing you more, then charges today have to be higher from the customer or consumer side. That all makes logical, real sense to me. And I, I can understand why you would be so concerned. And so 2% inflation is a really nice, easy way to keep you away from zero. And it's also a nice, easy way to kind of say, well, if we get to four, we're probably a bit uncomfortable. Today's market isn't like that. We're not a manufacturing economy in the same degree or at the same level as the 1970s. Certainly not. Like, and I think we can all agree that that's not the case. When you look at fast fashion, for example, a number of these fashion outlets can turn around from idea, like from design and idea to sales physical real sales into people's hands anywhere between four to six weeks. So does the future price of cotton impact that producer to the same degree as the future price of cotton impacting a fashion house in the 1970s? No, it doesn't at all. And so I think that we've become very trapped in this type of, let's look back in history to determine our interpretation or understanding of, of inflation. And when in reality, we've moved so far from that economy and that system that we have to actually be honest with ourselves and say, is inflation as concerning? And is inflation, you know, from a temporal standpoint, as impactful on prices? I'm apprehensive because I honestly think it's that type of thinking where we you say, well, we're seeing it elsewhere and we can you kind of argue around what's actually going on. 
And we almost nullify this concept of inflation in the process, myself included, of course. Like I'm, I'm telling you right now, this is how I'm thinking about inflation. And all of those things say inflation isn't as concerning as it has been in the past. You know, 1946 in Hungary, inflation, that was a big problem, right? Like that's a huge problem. I think we were talking about 13.6 quadrillion percent monthly inflation in 1946 Hungary, right? I think the, the currency was called the Pengo. The biggest denomination of that bill was something like 100 quintillion pengo, right? That's inflation. They're, We're not going there, though. No, but how did we get there? Like, how did that happen, right? In Hungary, that currency was introduced post-World War One, And then after World War Two, everything had fallen apart. And what did the government do? They basically just turned on the printing press and just say, look, we, this is what we have to do. And with reckless abandon, the Hungarian government go out and just print, 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 to the point where prices are doubling every 14 hours, right? Like that's, that's what we're talking, like that's chaos, that's inflation, hyperinflation. I don't even know what the word is for that, but it's, it's insanity. And we say, of course, yeah, of course, we're not going back to there. No, 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 that'd be insane. But when you look at the global like number in US dollar terms of bonds, government debt outstanding is 63 trillion. US dollar equivalents, you start to wonder how much of this printing press mentality of Hungary in the 1946 and this printing press mentality of today's governments and central banks, where we're talking six trillion budget for 2022 in the United States, six trillion, you know, you start breaking those numbers. And yeah, I get it. Like, it's scary when you say 63 trillion of government debt outstanding, of which the US is almost one third, but on a debt to GDP basis is what, 133%. Not as terrifying. And you've got Japan at near 260 or 250%, but they've been above 200 since 2010. Okay, so not as terrifying, not as worrying. And so we get fooled and lulled into this false sense of security that this printing of debt and this creation of money via that mechanism of printing loads and loads of bonds and then buying all of those bonds or lots of those bonds and putting money into the system and then not saying that that's generation of capital because it is. It just fundamentally is. It's not preparation like in terms of going to a printer and preparing it and sending it out that way, but it, it's fundamentally the same thing to me. And that's where I think that this level of i don't want to say arrogance right because i think arrogance is like it's just the wrong word it implies that you don't have a measure or knowledge or understanding of the the gravity of the situation you're facing so i don't want to say arrogance but when i look at where we are right now and we, you know we take the the hungary inflation example as an extreme obviously total extreme we got there kind of similarly to where we are today though, right? You had a government coming out of Second World War, spending a boatload of money, like with reckless abandon to solve their, their economic problem. And I get all the arguments, myself included, the ones I've, I've come here saying that it's not the same, the manufacturing economy is different from the 70s till now. But the arrogance or the, that, the word, I'm, I don't even know what I'm looking for, to think that, you've had these bouts of just massive hyperinflation, massive, 
and that this time it's different. Okay, we didn't go out like Hungary in 1946 and just start smashing the printing press. No, we didn't do that. Like, I agree. But 63 trillion of government debt is a big number. You got Biden talking about 6 trillion 22 budget. Like, these numbers are mathematically impossible to pay back. And while you're not sitting there at the handle of a printing press and chucking money in, if you're just issuing debt all day, every day, and then buying that debt back, and then putting that money into the system, how is it any different? Like, how is it any different? All it does, I guess, in terms of Hungary or Venezuela or, you know, 1912 Germany, the US, 1970, the difference this time is that you have massive asset price inflation that doesn't have commensurate CPI or actual consumer price inflation alongside it, which has a broadening wealth gap. And, and obviously the societal impact of that broadening wealth gap will come to fruition and they will have a fairly material impact on our countries and our economies. But I just think that we sometimes have to step back and, and just look at where we actually are and where we actually are is governments have given us this line, this just hook, this drip of life support that we just can't get off of now. Like we're so dead set that this is like, this is it, you know? And, and that to me, when I listen to central bankers talk about the lack of concern for inflation or that they're ready to let things run hot, Bundesbank 4%, 21, light hot, that scares me. It really scares me because all of the things that say that prices and rates and everything else are going to stay exactly where they are and we're not going to see PK stuff ever again, that just, when I add it all together, really starts to worry me, really worry me. Fair point. And like, I just think there's not enough history to really, to know. Like every, every episode is a little bit different than the last. And so the seventies is different than now. And the and uh, the 2000s are different than like every every period has its own little different dynamics. And so it, it does make things, I think, more challenging to say just just leaning on history all the time, because that that wouldn't have worked 10 years ago. And that wouldn't have worked 20 years ago. Like it consistently doesn't work. Like history might rhyme, but it doesn't really repeat necessarily. And so. No, but even at the time, what they were doing didn't work. Yeah, that like, that's my that's point. It. Is it's like, no, I don't even have to look in history to make decisions about what to do today. When you're making decisions today, and the impact were, you know, so unknown. Just look at the US and, and reverse repo right now and look at the glut of money in the system. I don't think any central banker wants or hopes for that, right? I don't think anyone says this is the end result that we're trying to achieve. This is just an unforeseen consequence of this emergency level policy running too long and too hot with, you know, kind of almost an abandon to what's actually going on. And I think that's where Canada really did, I think, get in front of it and do a superb job, right? And as I say, can be seen as a super boring central bank, but we're talking about a central bank that has tapered. We're talking about a central bank that is very actively in pursuit of control and stability. And we are not the US, obviously, but we're looking at a central bank here that in terms of its peers and what's going on, I think look very much in front of the problem and are, are actively engaged in trying to find resolution and stop whatever that next leg of chaos that comes. 
I, central bankers are supposed to be boring. At least I, I don't find that as an insult. Person. I hope so. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, that, I that, totally that, agree. That should be their goal. The, all of this begs the question. I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to kind of leave it with the audience in that, like, inflation continues to ramp higher. How willing are central banks, and and, and it would really be like the Fed, the ECB. I think those two more than anybody, and, and the Fed really more than the ECB because I think inflation is clearly more challenging in Europe. But how willing are they to jack rates high enough to pull inflation down? Are they willing to cause a recession? Their mandate now is very much more labor focused. And clearly, if you have to push rates higher to keep inflation under control, that's going to be a negative for the labor market for jobs. So I, I think that's maybe the question that should be asked right now, because I'm skeptical they have the fortitude to move in that direction if, if push comes to shove. But we'll see. We may not even get to that point. So it may, may just be a moot point, but we will see. Well, I think that's, yeah, I think it's too direct a point. It's of the tools at central bank's disposal, which ones will work? And I think you'll be like, if you actually start going down that rabbit hole, I don't think many. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Last topic for, for this week, Bank of Canada's meeting is next week. So just quickly on that, it's, it's not going to be a particularly eventful meeting, a boring meeting, you might say, which again is totally okay. Uh, I mean, the forecasts in the April NPR were pretty upbeat. So GDP disappointed for Q1 relative to their expectation. They, they were forecasting 7%, came in at 5.6. They were looking for the second quarter to be at 2.5% growth. Something closer to zero seems much more likely. So things not evolving exactly as they had expected is the third wave, definitely not helping things. So they'll probably be on a bit more maybe on the cautious side. Curious if they maybe mention the Canadian dollar again, maybe in a bit more of a concerned light, depending on, on I guess, the the move over the next week or so, commodity prices moved higher, unambiguous, big positive for Canada. And, and the Canadian dollar doesn't look like it's out of line, but I, I, they, maybe they want to put a shot across the bow of the market just as a warning that if you want to push the dollar outside of what's fundamentally reasonable, they're not really going to tolerate that. We, we could see something like that. And I guess the, the last question for the bank would be like, when is their next taper? Are they going to give us a hint on that? I mean, it, it could come as soon as July. I think there are some calling for that. Tough to see that necessarily at this point. Unless we see very clearly that June is insanely strong from a macro perspective, I kind of lean toward an October taper at this point. That's what we're calling for, just because the data will be pretty bad still. By the same token, it, it depends what the Fed's talking about. If the Fed's already in that taper conversation by the July meeting, that changes the dynamics a little bit for Canada as well, because the bank doesn't want to get too far ahead of the Fed. So we'll, we'll see where the Fed is at that point. But uh, don't don't expect a whole lot next week, I guess, would be my my takeaway. Anything to add on that, Dave? Uh, yeah, like I, I think you like you're bang on. It's just, what's the U.S. looking like as we go into it? I think one twenty dollar CAD. You know, it's obviously on radar. Something they're going to be focused on. The tailwinds that likely come second half this year to towards the you know tail end third quarter, start fourth quarter in Canada, probably give enough protection to a richer Canadian dollar short term. But I don't think that they're going to allow that to get too out of control. And, that, you know, I think that they'll use language around that and the market will hear them. And I think that they've built up enough credibility, particularly this year in tapering and, and the messaging around that, that the market will listen it and will believe. When I look at Canada and at the Bank of Canada, you've got, what, 70% priced in for a hike July next year, 65 70%, something like that. It's all like, to me, that's just a coin flip, right? There's too many unknowns. There's too many things that can happen in the next year that make that number, not the number that, you know, I'm overly concerned with or that I'm paying too much attention to. 
what is kind of capturing my interest right now is just the general shape of curves, the general shape of, of, of Canada versus the US. You know, you look at twos, fives curve, Canada versus its peers, and the US is actually steeper, right? By about six basis points, I reckon, something like that. Whereas when you look at fives on the fly, and I, I use fives just because I think it's all safe to say if capers happen, fives, maybe sevens, but fives definitely get torched. Doesn't matter which country you are, fives get banged. and. We just have to look at the taper time from 2013 to see that the five-year fly in the U.S. moves minus 50 to plus nine in about two months, something like that, right? So I say the five-year point, that's where I'm focused on. Kind of five-year point, the five-year fly is actually looking pretty cheap relative to the U.S. and actually to the, the G7, G10 peers. And I, I kind of like that as an expression because I, I think overly optimistic tapering expectations of the bank based purely on the economics, while is appropriate and like I think that's how we should look at things. The reality is is Canada's very much in line or aligned with the US and we can't go too far on that on the move before they do. So I, I think that there probably is a trade there. Fives look pretty cheap in Canada and it's not a bad little expression for US catch up. At some point the US is going to have to do something. And if we continue to see robust data coming out and commodity price inflation and producer price inflation and you know supply and demand driven inflation i think that that becomes far more probable far quicker and then canada has a little bit more leeway to move so i don't expect anything next week as you say good golf is ta- is typically boring golf and that's really what i want to see from the bank of canada i think that you know, there's plenty of opportunity for them to to get going they've set the tone They've set the expectations. They've set a very strong and transparent communication with the market. And they've, they've owned and, and they've earned that believability and credibility from the market. So, yeah, I'm, I'm more or less pretty much bang on with you on this one. All right. Last, last thing before we wrap up. So two things. One, top trade idea at the moment. And, and what is the one thing, just one, that the Asian investor base is thinking? What's their, what's their top concern? Like, do they like the market here or not? I guess it would be really the way to look at it. And what are you pitching to them? Sure. Yeah, as I say, I like I like the belly of Canada versus the U.S. I think it offers attractive. You know, it's pretty much flat roll down in carry plus nine beeps for like the 24s, 25 sector, something like that. So you don't give away any money against the U.S. Really, which is nice. It's always good to have an expression that doesn't cost a ton of money to hold. And I just think that there's enough there. To, to suggest that Canada barely outperforms the next little bit versus the US. And so I, I kind of like that, that whether it's five-year fly or five-year outrights, like I, I think that it's starting to look really quite attractive and for like a three-month or four-month hold, something like that. In terms of the one thing that Asian investors are looking at right now, is I would say they're generally pretty bearish rates. They expect higher yields. And that's not just in the like the five year sector, it's it's tens and outs. They're they're pretty bearish. They're using what they can to try and create carry and accruals in their books, which is prudent and appropriate. But in terms of core views, it's very hard to find a bullish rates story from them. And I, I don't disagree with them. And I think that when you can buy assets that are you know they they're good for accrual purposes and absolutely go for it, but they're certainly not skewing their books to max long, 
with this idea that that rates are going back to say 10 year yields are going back to 125 or anything like that that is just not what we're seeing or hearing all right cool thanks dave appreciate you coming on the show again and i uh, hope to talk to you soon stay well yeah thanks very much for having me cheers thanks for listening to views from the north a canadian rates and macro podcast i hope you'll join me again for another episode this podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.